0: number 222 of Real Life Ghost Stories and to kick things off this week I need to say thanks to some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Sue Tanada Vancouver Harp Amanda Morino Jeff Barnosky Michael and Dio Grey Movies Next Ridge Elizabeth Peter Mike McCaber Jordan McDowell Amelia Adams And Dawn Mitchell. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week. Our film review is The Tank. The Tank was released in 2023. It has 4.6 out of 10 on IMDb and 42% on Rotten Tomatoes. After mysteriously inheriting an abandoned coastal property... Ben and his family accidentally unleash an ancient, long-dormant creature that terrorised the entire region, including his own ancestors, for generations. Now, as always, we're going to do our likes and dislikes, and we're going to start with our likes. And I have to say, right, it's nice to see a horror movie couple who are in love, who are likeable, who are united, and who are not absolute gobshites who you are hoping die horribly because of their stupid decision-making. Firstly, this film feels very Lovecraftian. There's sort of like lots of rumbling growls in the distance, lots of like growling from under the earth, which I liked. It's quite a slow move in the beginning. So you're not sort of like, it's not the type of creature feature where you've got creature from the off, you know. And upon reflection, I just have to say before I continue any further, my statement of wanting characters to die horribly has, has shaken me slightly. Does this mean that I am a sadist? Does this mean that there is a latent serial killer inside me waiting to get out? Perhaps. Or maybe I just don't like characters making stupid decisions in horror films. Anyway, back to the Lovecraftian nature. So you've got this sort of impending threat. You do not see the creature until quite late on in this film. And I respect that because I think Often when you see the creature early, it loses its fear factor. I also liked the sounds that the creature made. I know that sounds really stupid, but I think the soundscape, particularly in creature features, can be really terrifying. And they can kind of promote a sense of real impending doom. And the sounds the creature made were pretty, pretty freaky. And you know what? The setting was good. They inherit this house. I'm confused as to why this has never happened to me. Why have I got no spooky relatives that are leaving me houses in their wills? I don't know. You know, Why is no spooky relative leaving me anything in their will? I don't know. But this house is in like this sprawling forest in the Pacific Northwest by the sea. And it's wild and remote and lovely. And what I really appreciate is that the main characters, they, are, they talk openly about how spooky the house is. And they're like, oh, this place is a little bit creepy. And, oh, this is a bit weird. And... And they they have the conversations that you would have if you were in their situation, where you'd be like, why did nobody ever tell us about this house? This is really strange. And this house feels a bit unnerving. And there's noises coming from the forest. And they listen to each other, you know. They go, oh, you heard noises? That's a bit scary. Maybe we should investigate it. Rather than going, oh, you heard noises? Well, I'm just going to say it's your imagination repeatedly until my head is eaten off by a big monster. And fundamentally, it was well acted. You know, I liked the characters and they felt believable, more believable than a lot of characters that you see in horror films. And they seemed to um, actually like each other and they listened to each other and they reasoned out their decision making, even when it didn't seem like the right decision to make. When they got to the end of their reasoning, you were like, oh, yeah, no, I totally understand why you're doing that now. And I guess the last kind of 15 minutes of the film were like jam packed full of action there was lots of monster action, there was lots of peril, there was lots of fighting for survival and I, I dug it, you know. I'm a big fan of a creature feature. And now on to my dislikes. It was just, the film was just a bit meh. It was a bit predictable, it was a bit boring, you know. It, it was fine, there was, but there was nothing new. In all the things that I liked about this film, I feel like we've sort of seen those things a million times in other creature features and it didn't really go anywhere new. There was lots of like really great potential. I mean, they hear this story that the native people, the indigenous people on the land did stopped living on the land because they felt like it was cursed because their people were disappearing, being pulled into the ground by this mysterious creature. I mean, that was that was really interesting, but it was only just sort of shoehorned in in this tiny moment of the story and I I hate myself for saying this but I think the monsters were kind of cute I've made the decision I've thought about this long and hard long and hard being since I watched the film yesterday I think they were kind of cute they were sort of this cross between a demogorgon and an otter and I'm not sure if cute is what they were going for when they created these man-eating cuties, you know? If anybody else watches this film, like, tell me you don't feel a little bit like you want to cuddle those creatures. Tell me that when you see it kind of hovering with its head just above the water, that it doesn't look like an otter. And this is my fatal flaw in a horror film, because I'd be like, "Oh, oh, you're kind of cute. You're not going to eat me, despite all of the evidence that suggests otherwise. I kind of, to be honest, I didn't really understand the makeup of the creature. It was sort of lizardy, it was sort of ottery, sort of demagogany. There was a lot going on. What I did respect is that they did something completely new. It wasn't a type of creature that we've seen before. I thought it was interesting to try something different. And, you know, I respect that. But overall, like, it's a pretty formulaic creature feature. And I felt like I know how this is going to end the whole way through I was kind of like oh we know where this is going but did I like the characters yes is it another three-star film yes and I can feel people collectively rolling their eyes and I'm sorry but it is another three-star film I wouldn't I wouldn't say you know seek it out it's a must-see but it's a it's definitely a good watch I think it's actually probably one of the more family-friendly horrors that I've watched in some time as in if you had kind of Teenage kids that you want to watch some scary movies with, I think this would be a good one to do that with because it doesn't have anything particularly outlandish in there, and it's got some good moments of scare and good moments where you're going to be cheering along the characters. So it's a three stars for the tank from me. God, I feel like that review's been pretty short, but um, it just was kind of a, a meh kind of film, you know. It's not very much to say about it. wasn't great, wasn't terrible. Which brings us to our story this week. Now for our stories this week, I came across a story about a cursed item in London that I was unaware of, which led me to another cursed item, and I decided that today we're going to cover both of them. Let's get into it. When people visit London, they expect to see Big Ben, Westminster Abbey, the Tower of London, Tower Bridge and Buckingham Palace. All of those sites are quintessentially British. But would they expect to see a giant monument that seems to be lifted straight out of Egypt? For visitors to the Victorian embankment, it may seem out of place to spot two giant sphinx statues flanking an ancient obelisk. For over 100 years, this landmark has stood on the banks of the River Thames, offering visitors a glimpse of Egypt. But why is this monumental monument in London? Was it constructed locally or brought all the way from Egypt? And how old is this ancient monument? And more importantly, why is it considered to be cursed? These questions are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this famous landmark known as Cleopatra's Needle. It stands 75 feet tall and weighs 168 tons which is ten times more than the largest stone at Stonehenge. On either side of the obelisk sits two bronze sphinxes. But its mystery doesn't stop at its size or location. As I said, the obelisk is believed to be cursed. The obelisk was erected in the city of Heliopolis in Egypt. It was made out of granite from the quarries of Aswan and dedicated to Pharaoh Thutmose III. Aswan is an ancient city in Egypt, later known as Sien. During antiquity, it was the frontier town of ancient Egypt to the south. It operated as one of the strategic and commercial gateways and contained some of the most significant archaeological sites in Egyptian history, including the Temple of Isis. Heliopolis was one of the most major cities in all of ancient Egypt. It served as the capital of the 13th nome, a district in lower Egypt. It's also one of the oldest cities in Egypt. Occupation dates back to the early dynastic period around 3100 BCE. One of the most significant cultural icons of the city was an obelisk of the Temple of Ra-Atum which was erected by Senersret I of Dynasty Twelve. Today the city is known as Ain Shams and is located in the northeastern district of Cairo. Remarkably, that obelisk of the Temple of Ra'atum still stands today in its original position in the Cairo area. The monument stands 21 meters high or 69 feet tall and weighs 120 tons. Many people believe it to be the oldest surviving obelisk in the world. Another obelisk that stood in Heliopolis during ancient times, the obelisk of Montes Sitorio, was brought to Rome under the rule of Octavian, the founder of the Roman Empire. Another obelisk from the city of Heliopolis, Cleopatra's Needle, was brought to London in 1877. The Sultan of Egypt and Sudan presented the obelisk to the British government in 1819 in commemoration of Lord Nelson's victory at the Battle of the Nile in 1789, and Sir Ralph Abercrombie's victory at the Battle of Alexandria in 1801. The obelisk was moved to Alexandria and set up in the Caesareum, a temple built by Cleopatra in honour of Mark Anthony or Julius Caesar by the Romans in 12 BCE, during the reign of Augustus. But it wasn't the only one. There were actually two obelisks that made the journey to Alexandria. By 1881, one of the needles was erected in Central Park in New York City. This one is located right next to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and was a gift from the Khedive, the Viceroy of Egypt. The gift was in reaction to United States remaining neutral as France and Britain fought to secure political control of the Egyptian government. Sir William James Erasmus Wilson, an anatomist and dermatologist sponsored the move from Alexandria to London. It cost £10 at the time, which was the equivalent to about £1 million today, so it was a very costly move, and unfortunately the cost wouldn't stop at just money. Because of the weight of the monument, the challenge was to create an innovative transportation method to move it. It couldn't just be loaded up in a ship already set for London. Special arrangements had to be made in order to move, load, and sail the giant object halfway across the world. The needle weighed over 200 tons. That's about the same weight as a blue whale, the largest animal on the planet. Another way to think about just how heavy this monument is, is the fact that a hippo only weighs 4.2 tons, making the needle about 50 times heavier. Transporting the weight of 50 hippos across the ocean doesn't seem too easy. One last comparison is that the Statue of Liberty, one of New York City's most iconic scene-stealers, is 150 tons, and that's not including the base where she rests. So imagine having to transport something larger than the Statue of Liberty. The sheer volume of the needle meant that special arrangements needed to be made. In other words, it wasn't going to be just rolled up onto a ship on its side and carried across the ocean like a regular trip at sea. Instead, the needle was encased in an iron cylinder, and was rolled by means of levers and chains down a track into the sea. It was then fitted with a deckhouse, a mast, a rudder, and steering gear. They turned it into its very own ship. It even had a crew. It was manned by a crew of Maltese sailors. They named the vessel Cleopatra for obvious reasons, but it could not sail completely on its own. It needed to be towed by a larger ship. A steamship called Olga was tasked with towing the Cleopatra all the way to Britain. They sailed on September 21st 1877. Captain Henry Carter supervised the construction and commanded the Cleopatra while Captain Booth commanded the Olga. It seemed like a genius plan. But there was a disaster at sea. The two vessels could not travel very fast due to the weights and the towing. The pair were only travelling about seven knots. When a storm struck while they were passing through the Bay of Biscay, they were forced to cut the tow ropes between the two vessels. The sea was too violent, and it was too unsafe for the passengers aboard both vessels for them to remain tied together. But six men from the Alga lost their lives in the attempt to cut the ropes. They drowned trying to rescue the men aboard the Cleopatra. Their names are memorialised at the base of the obelisk with a plaque that reads Perished in a bold attempt to secure the crew of the obelisk ship Cleopatra during the storm on October the 14th 1877. The men who died were William Askin, James Gardiner, Joseph Benbow, Michael Burns, William Donald, and William Patton. Thankfully, all of the men from the Cleopatra were saved and safely on board the Olga, including Captain Carter. But, in the chaos of the storm, the Cleopatra drifted away with no captain or crew to man her. She was lost at sea. At least, that is what was assumed. After all, the Cleopatra wasn't a proper ship, but a makeshift vessel meant to be towed. The separation from the Alga and the intensity of the storm left everyone assuming that the historical monument was lost and the sea had claimed another victim. But miraculously, she was spotted a few days later in the Mediterranean by a Glasgow steamer ship called the Fitzmorris. The Cleopatra was then towed to Spain, where it landed in Feral Harbour. She was then towed to England by a paddle tugboat, where they both arrived safely at Gravesend on January the 21st, 1878. On September the 12th, 1878, the needle was erected on the Victorian embankment in London. A time capsule was inserted into the pedestal containing random objects meant to symbolise the time. The capsule contains 12 photographs of beautiful women, a box of hairpins, a box of cigars, tobacco pipes. A set of imperial weights, a baby's bottle, toys, a shilling razor, samples of some of the cables used in the erection of the needle, a portrait of Queen Victoria, a map of London and a written history of the transportation of the giant needle. Could the objects in the time capsule be contributing to the strange and inexplicable phenomena that surround the monument? Could it be that one of those objects is haunted? With the arrival of the Needle being plagued by the deaths of six men, it didn't take long for other rumours to start to spread about ominous activity surrounding the ancient artefact. Ghostly screams and mocking laughter have been reported by visitors to the Needle. But one of the most heartbreaking patterns associated with the Needle involves acts of suicide. The ghost of a naked man has been seen dashing behind the monument. He's been seen jumping into the cold water of the River Thames but causing no ripples in the water. He is believed to be the source of the eerie laughter often heard near the monument. The first sighting of this apparition was seen only a few weeks after the needle was erected. This has led many to believe the apparition is one of the six men who lost his life while transporting the needle. But this phantom suicide isn't the only suicide associated with the monument. Sadly, several drownings have occurred in the river. On two separate occasions, a policeman was approached by a woman on a nearby bridge. She urged the officer to rush over to the needle to prevent somebody from attempting to jump into the river as an act of suicide. When the police officer reached the needle, he sees that very same woman who stopped him on the bridge earlier. The woman then leaps into the river and completely disappears. No one knows who this lady is or why she would be jumping into the river. In that area of the River Thames near the obelisk, there are more suicides than along any other point on the river. Legend has it that the soul of Ramses II is imprisoned inside the obelisk. In 1880, a woman named Miss Davies was wandering along the embankment when she felt there was some sort of force pulling her towards it. As she got closer, she heard laughter and lost control of her legs, flinging herself into the water. Thankfully, she was saved by a passerby. However, the experience left her traumatised. She began experiencing horrible nightmares featuring a tall woman with a white face and black almond eyes. The woman wore red robes and had sharp, pointy teeth. Her face appeared as though the flesh had been ripped right off. Miss Davies believed all of her nightmares and the near-drowning incident were all due to the obelisk. The woman in her nightmares resembled that of an Egyptian priestess, or a member of Egyptian nobility. Alistair Crowley was an English occultist, and he will be getting his very own episode at some point. He was also a ceremonial magician, known for founding the religion of Thelema. Story goes that Crowley himself paid a visit to the iconic Needle, performing some sort of dark sorcery at the base of the Needle in an attempt to free Ramses' trapped spirit. The ceremony involved him feeding animal blood to a human skeleton. His attempt was unsuccessful, and it is said that Ramses laughed at Crowley's failure. The story is one of the most unsubstantiated myths associated with the famous Needle. But like I said, the myths and legends of Aleister Crowley will need a whole other episode. On September the 4th, 1917, the obelisk was bombed during an air raid. The base of the needle was damaged, but when World War I ended, the city decided to leave the damage. A plaque on the base reads, The scars that disfigure the pedestal of the obelisk, the bases of the sphinxes, and the right hand of the sphinx, were caused by fragments of a bomb dropped in the roadway close to this spot in the first raid on London by German aeroplanes a few minutes before midnight on Tuesday the 4th of September 1917. This damage has become a part of the Needle's legacy. If you are brave enough, visit the Needle at midnight. As you look up to the top of the Needle, recite the sentence, I call spirits from the vastly deep. Maybe then you might find some of the answers to the questions regarding whether or not the needle is really cursed. But maybe the outdoors just isn't quite your thing. Maybe museums are more your vibe. In the British Museum there exists another very dangerous, very cursed artefact. The mummy case of a high priestess of the Temple of Amen ra There are, of course, many slightly different versions of the story of the curse of this particular mummy case. Stories of cursed tombs and artefacts tend to take on a life of their own and get passed around so much that they become slightly bent out of shape. But, according to Peter Underwood in his 1974 book Haunted London, one thing is for certain, and I quote... From the time the mummy case passed into the possession of an Englishman in Egypt in around 1860, a strange series of fatalities followed its journey, and even when it resided in the mummy room at the British Museum, sudden deaths haunted those who handled the 3,500-year-old relic from Luxor. But our story truly starts a few years before the mummy was taken from Egypt. Count Louis Hamon, who was commonly known as Chero, was an astrologer and palmist. He once told a story that he had read the palm of a young man named Douglas Murray. As soon as he took the hand of Douglas Murray, Chero had an experience of intense feelings of dread and fear. Something awful was going to happen to this man. Chero was completely convinced that this man was going to somehow lose his arm in the near future. Chero believed that the hand would come into contact with a treasure of some kind, which would unleash a series of unfortunate events. Sure enough, a few years later, Douglas Murray returned to see Chero, and sure enough, he had lost his arm in a series of strange events. He had been in Cairo with two friends, and while there he was shown... A beautifully preserved mummy case. It was delicate and opulent and the hieroglyphics that adorned it showed that this was a case of a high priestess of Amun-Ra. The case had the very features of the young priestess worked into the outside of it, a fine find indeed. Each of the three friends desperately wanted the case and in the end they drew straws for it. Douglas Murray won the case and had it packaged up for dispatch to London. He would very soon regret that he was the worthy winner of such a prize. Perhaps he should have at this point remembered Chero's warning. But he did not, and a few days later he was shooting ducks on the Nile when his shotgun exploded and shattered his right arm. He needed medical attention fast, and on his rushed journey back to Cairo, They faced dreadful winds and it was a full 10 days before he was able to make it to Cairo and receive any medical attention. And by that point it was too late. His arm had become gangrenous and had to be amputated immediately. Because of this incident, it was now time for him to return to England, ill and shaken from his experience, but the journey back would not get any easier. Both of his companions died on the journey back and were buried at sea. And when Murray returned home, there waiting for him, unpacked and resplendent, was the mummy case. Except something was different about it now. Something had changed. The face that was so delicately carved into the gold and enamel case suddenly did not look young and beautiful anymore. Now it looked old. And full of malice and hate. Murray did not have to suffer the horror of the case for long, though. A journalist was writing a piece about Douglas Murray and asked if she could borrow the mummy case. He was glad to be rid of it. But lo and behold, as soon as she took the case to her home, bad luck befell her. Her mother fell down the stairs and died. Her fiance ended their engagement. Her prize dogs went mad and she became ill. She returned the mummy case to Murray. Murray could not keep it in his home and decided that the British Museum would be the best place for it. He made arrangements with a friend named Wheeler who was an ardent Egyptologist to take the case and make arrangements with the British Museum to have it transferred. In a mere matter of weeks, Wheeler was found dead. A servant maintained that he had been unable to sleep since the mummy case had been brought into the house. The stories didn't end when the mummy was brought to the British Museum. According to Chero, anyone who attempted to photograph or sketch the mummy suffered ill fortune. Also, according to Chero, Douglas Murray lost most of his fortune when the mummy came into his possession. Stuart Martin, the novelist and journalist, added that when the case was being photographed by a photographer, he was shocked and appalled to see that instead of the ornate gold and enamel carved face, the developed pictures showed an entirely different face, a face that was twisted and contorted with hatred and spite. The photographer died soon afterwards. Stuart Martin also added that when the mummy was transported to the British Museum, the carrier who moved it died a week later. Ghost hunter Thurston Hopkins also investigated the case and believed that 13 people who had come in direct contact with the mummy case had lost their lives. He claimed that a press photographer had taken a picture of the mummy case at the British Museum and had returned the next day, pale and shaking, with the photograph in his hands. He gave it to Sir Ernest Wallace Budge, who was the keeper of Assyrian and Egyptian antiquities in the British Museum for 30 years. The photograph showed a woman's face. Twisted and horrible. And after leaving the museum, the photographer shot himself. Hopkins went on to say that Wallace Budge, an Egyptologist, was constantly worried about the mummy case. Staff in the museum were regularly reporting sobbing sounds coming from the case and sounds of hammering and banging coming from it as if someone was desperately trying to get out. One night, a keeper in the mummy room had watched in horror as a figure sat up from the case and turned towards him. This thing had a horrible yellow face twisted with rage and it glided towards him with a sickening smooth silence before disappearing in a flash. The daughter of a museum keeper reported that her father would come home telling stories about the Amin Ra mummy case. Museum cleaners were terrified of it and stayed away from it, a new worker didn't believe the rumours and was disrespectful to the case, and his son died soon afterwards. Several workers were injured when they were moving the case to various display positions. And our final piece of the Amin Ra story is that the British Museum decided to send the case to America to a museum in New York. The case was packed up and placed and its transport ship. An unsinkable vessel, the first of its kind in the world. The HMS Titanic. Except much of the stories about the Amin Ra mummy case are untrue. Mr Douglas Murray absolutely did not find the mummy in Egypt and suffer a series of unfortunate events. Nor was he bankrupt. He died a wealthy man, but was indeed fascinated with spiritualism. And he had heard a story of a woman who brought an Egyptian mummy to England, and she had placed it in her drawing room. The next morning, everything that was breakable in that room was found smashed to pieces. Perplexed, the woman moved the mummy to another room, and again, everything was smashed to pieces. Frightened now, the mummy was moved to the attic, and the door firmly locked, and every night the family would hear footsteps up and down the stairs and heavy items would be moved from room to room and floor to floor of the house. They also began to experience other paranormal activities like flickering lights and an entity seen on the stairs. All of the servants resigned in one go. Around the same time that Douglas and his friend Mr. W.T. Stead heard this story, the Amin Ra mummy case was presented to the British Museums. Douglas and went to see this mummy case and they believed that the face on the case showed a living soul in torment and they tried to organise a seance in the British Museum to contact this soul. They ensured that their views on this were well known and the story began to gather momentum in newspapers. But the story of the woman who had paranormal activity after bringing a mummy into her house and the case of Amen Ra got completely muddled and conflated. Every time the story was printed, another salacious detail was added. When the story of the case being shipped in the Titanic was told, it gained a whole other lease of life. The story went that the case was somehow recovered from the wreckage and it was sold to a Canadian man who took it to Montreal, where it continued to wreak havoc in the lives of everyone, who it came in contact with until the owner decided that it should be returned to England, on the ship the Empress of Ireland, which sank in the St. Lawrence River and the coffin lid was lost to the murky depths. Except it wasn't. It had never left the British Museum and none of the stories about it were true. The stories were helpfully perpetuated by Murray and Stead, who perhaps just wanted people to believe in the power of the paranormal. But for the most part, the mummy case was just a beautifully preserved and mysterious artefact of a time and a people that seemed beyond contemporary comprehension. There is, however, one little detail about the mummy case of Amon ra that has intrigued people for years. Sir Wallace Budge was arguably the most learned Egyptologist of the modern era, He translated the Egyptian Book of the Dead. The Book of the Dead was considered to be a divine text that was written for the dead by a god. The book is filled with spells and incantations designed to help with the preservation of the mummy, but also to help grant everlasting life. It is speculated that privately, Budge believed wholeheartedly That the Egyptian magic was real. And certainly he believed in the power of their dead. He said, and I quote, Never print what I say in my lifetime. But the mummy case of Princess Amon-Ra caused the war. So as it turns out, this week's episode is a little bit wild and weird and wonderful. But I did not know any of this about Cleopatra's Needle and i certainly did not know this about the mummy of the priestess of amun-ra so let's go let's go back to the needle before we deal with the <laughs> mysterious random ambiguous statement about the war first i think the whole story of the transportation of cleopatra's needle is absolutely wild the fact that they turned it into a ship is pretty ingenious and i i kind of maybe even more so than the paranormal i i really was fascinated by the lengths that people went to get this item from Egypt to England at a time where that was going to be no easy task and of course that was reflected by the fact that you know six people lost their lives while trying to ship this from Egypt to England imagine this thing was just floating in the water when it was found by the Fitzmaurice just floating along and they would have been like, oh what's this? Oh it's a giant obelisk from Egypt that's been turned into a ship somehow. I think that's just incredibly fascinating. But do I fundamentally believe that this obelisk is cursed? No, I don't. I think that throughout the years many people have taken their own lives along the banks of the river and for a long time London was a community that was made up of great extremes where people were extremely poor and extremely desperate or extremely rich and extremely privileged there was very few that were kind of in in the in-between and like a lot of those people went through a lot there was a lot of crime there was a lot of murder there was a lot of people who took their own lives do i think that that part of the river might have some serious negative energy yeah probably yeah definitely but i don't necessarily think that it's because of the needle the ghosts themselves, like the phantom sailor, this naked man laughing maniacally and then jumping into the water. And that is, that is, that's really, that really freaked me out for some reason. I find that really scary. And also this poor woman who goes to the police officer and says, you know, somebody's at the needle. They're going to jump in and then the officer goes and it's and it's actually her. That's really, really sad. Those stories are sad. I mean, in the current climate, there's a lot of conversations about returning items to their home countries, particularly items that were taken during times of colonization. And this particular obelisk was gifted to England. There have been calls, however, from Egyptologists to send it back from Egypt because there there is a belief that an obelisk such as this should be kept in a temple or a place of worship because it is very important and it shouldn't be held in a park on the side of the river in a square on the side of the river you know it should be revered in a very particular way and I you know I respect that I respect those ideas and I wonder if a part of this idea of a curse is a subconscious feeling that this item maybe shouldn't be there this subconscious feeling that bad things happen around this item because this item was taken from a place of worship where it was very important at one point in time this would have been an item that people maybe revered and now it's sort of been taken and plunked onto the side of a river where 99% of the people pa- who pass it don't know the story of that object and don't understand the importance of that object for the people who it was first built for. I mean, I've seen that obelisk and I've seen those sphinxes and I was always like, I wonder what they're there for. And that probably says a lot about me that I didn't take the time to um to, to look it up and see where they'd come from and learn the whole story. And as for the Alistair Crowley connection, the first thing I'm going to say is that I I know that people are going to say it's Alistair Crowley, but I met a guy who is probably the number one academic on Crowley in the world and has written about him, etc, etc. He owns Boleskin House, which was Crowley's house on Loch Ness. And I met him a couple of years ago and had a lovely chat with him. And he referred to him as Alistair Crowley. So I'm 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 doing the same thing. Okay, I'm taking my cue from him. Alistair Crowley was very interested in Egypt he spent some time in Egypt and came back with some very interesting ideas but Aleister Crowley was also completely vilified by the media like people hated him were terrified of him you know thought that he was some sort of demonic horror from the underworld and he was probably very misunderstood really he's a bit of a complex character but I, I you know I, I feel like ego wise I could imagine him thinking that he knew that this obelisk contained the, st- the soul of Ramses and whatever and he was the one that would be able to release it. Do I fully believe the story? Probably not. Would I be brave enough to stand under the needle and say I call the spirits from the vastly deep? I, I don't know that I would be okay. I- I'm just going to put it out there. I don't know that I would be. I love stories of cursed mummies and cursed mummies tombs and all that jazz. I equally wonder if a part of our belief of the curse of mummies and mummies tombs and all that jazz also comes from the fact that these this is these were people's resting places. Like People spent a lot of time and money and effort making a resting place that they believed would help them move to the afterlife. And they were places of great importance and respect. And then, you know, people just rocked up and opened them up and took shit out of them and took mummies. And people were eating mummies for a period of time. And I believe it was known as medical cannibalism, and people believed that ground up bits of mummies would cure certain diseases. It was particularly prevalent in the sixteenth century, but it continued right up until the nineteenth century. People were just out here eating mummies, and I wonder if a part of all of the the curses and all that jazz is some sort of deep ingrained guilt about the fact that you know people were taking these bodies from their burial place and literally in some cases consuming them. And I found it really fascinating in particular about this story of Amun-Ra because as I was reading through it I was like whoa this is a really interesting story and all of this stuff happened and this man named Douglas Murray and oh my god he experienced so much at the hands of this mummy, this mummy's case rather, like I can't believe I've never heard this story before. And then I got to the end and it was like, and it's pretty much none of it is true. But two people seem to have really benefited from this story in a bizarre way. So Douglas Murray seems to have perpetuated this story of him finding this 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 mummy's case in Egypt and winning it and terrible events happening, et cetera, et cetera. And I read a brilliant article about the Amun-Ra mummy on a website called darkestlondon.com. Um, the, the writer's name was Mark Haynes and it, it's really good. The link's in the description. I would highly recommend checking it out. But he spoke about how it potentially Douglas Murray perpetuated this rumour because he was so interested in spiritualism. And he so deeply believed it that he wanted other people to believe it too. And this was a way to get other people to believe and listen and take notice. I don't think, as far as I'm aware, that the seance that they wanted to do in the British Museum ever actually took place. I can only presume the British Museum were like, no, absolutely not. Eventually, the British Museum did come out and make a statement and say, the mummy case is here. It was not on the Titanic. It did not sink. It was not removed from public display. It has not caused any injuries that we are aware of. It is here. People can come and see it, but it doesn't cause any issues. However, that being said, I do believe that there, it's probably very likely that people, you know, night staff, cleaners, etc., have probably had experiences in the British Museum at nighttime, things that were frightening, things that were terrifying, whether that was, you know, their subconscious being in rooms with all these ancient artifacts, or whether it was some sort of energy attached to these ancient artifacts, being like, "Hang on, I am here in this museum and not where I, not where I was intended to be." Maybe that rustles up some sort of energy and causes people to have these experiences. Who knows? But the other person who seems to have benefited from this is, <laughs> is Chero, who I talked about on Patreon. I believe he was believed to be like the greatest palm reader that ever lived, but. It's interesting that he also perpetuated this lie that that this mummy case ended up on the Titanic and he told this whole story about how Douglas Murray had come to him and he told me he was going to lose an arm. But I guess if your business is palmistry, then, you know, you need that publicity. You need to get people through the door to spend their money and believe that you can, you know, do these great things. And this brings me to my final point, which is this quote. Never print what I say in my lifetime. But the mummy case of Princess Amon Ra caused the war. What does that mean? Let me tell ta- when I die, when I die, I'm going to write something in my diary, right? And I'm going to write something really ambiguous and mysterious. And I'm going to be like, never, never print this when I'm alive. But, and people are going to be like, oh my God, she knew, she knew something. And people are going to be trying to figure out for centuries what I was talking about when really... I'm just winding people up. Like, what does that mean? Does this mean caused World War One? This man, Sir Wallace Budge, died prior to World War Two. So did he really believe that this mummy caused the war? Or this mummy case, rather? I keep saying mummy and that's not correct. And if that was the case, surely you'd write down the reasons why. You'd be like, it caused the war and the reasons why I think this is this, this and this. surely, surely. But that's maybe that's just me. Maybe that's where I'd go wrong. I'd go too deep into trying to explain my ambiguous statement. And therefore, people would end up not believing it. And just as a brilliant addendum to this story, um, I got this story from a book called Haunted London by Peter Underwood. Really good book. Goes to different areas of London and all the different ghosts and stories associated with different areas of London. But in it, talking about the mummy case of Amon ra he interviewed... <laughs> a worker and at the time that he interviewed her she was like 100 years old and he said you know tell me about the the haunting of the Am and Ra mummy case and she was like oh yeah yeah no i made up loads of stuff about that and told it to people and i didn't realize that it would that it would grow legs and the story would still be being told to this day basically she said she used to make up stuff to scare people sometimes when she <laughs> was showing people around the museum, and then another time she did an interview and she told them loads of scary stories about the about the mummy's case that weren't true. Not expecting it to be as powerful as it was, and then obviously it captured people's imaginations. And she was like, "Oh shit, yeah, I might have caused some of this too." Fundamentally, do I believe Cleopatra's needle is cursed? No. Do I believe the mummy case, Ramon ra Ras, cursed? Also no. Do I believe that these things should probably be sent back to where they came from? Yeah, probably. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. It probably feels um a little bit manic and a little bit wild, this episode. At least it does from my end. It's just, life is very manic and wild at the moment. I've got a lot going on and uh, it has taken me maybe four or five attempts to record this episode. I usually do it all in one go and I've had to break this down because things keep happening while I'm recording and I need to go and sort out. So if it feels a bit a bit edgy and a bit manic... Um, you're not imagining it. It is just because things are a bit edgy and manic at the moment, but they will calm down soon. Thank you so much for listening. If you have your own story that you would like to send to Real Life Ghost Stories Podcast, you can do that by emailing it to Real Life Ghost Stories Podcast at gmail dot com. You can also check out the website Real Stories dot com. And if you are desperate for some extra content, you can subscribe to the Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash real life ghost stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you can get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single mini and main episode, absolutely ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next time. (laughs) Too tired to clean your floors after playtime?